0: Back in 1954, uh, Governor Christian Herter, governor of Massachusetts, was on the campaign trail, actively campaigning for his second term in office. And so on one particular day, he was out on the campaign trail, and he was busy all morning long and through the lunch hour. He didn't eat any lunch, and he was just trying to fight for every last vote. Finally, he had an appointment in the mid-afternoon at a church. And as part of that scheduled event... That he joined, there was a potluck lunch in a barbecue, and so there he was, mid-afternoon, and he was so hungry because he had skipped lunch a few hours earlier, and he was making his way through the buffet line. And so Governor Christian, he gets to uh, the lady who was serving the chicken, and she puts a piece of chicken on his plate, and he was so hungry, he normally wouldn 't be so bold to ask, but he just had to ask. He said, ma'am, I'm pretty hungry. May I please have a second piece of chicken? And she responded nicely, sorry, I was told that each person gets only one piece of chicken. And normally he was a rather bashful fellow, but he decided to pull a little rank on this occasion. He says, well, ma'am, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And without skipping a beat, she looks him right in the eye and says, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. Now move along. (laughs) I love that. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jonah was as quick to obey as the lady put in charge of handing out the chicken? Jonah had some issues with following God's orders. And we've been seeing that over the last couple weeks as we've been diving in the first couple chapters of the book of Jonah in the Old Testament. Uh, The job of the Old Testament prophet was not complicated. Uh, It was hard, but it wasn't complicated. The, The prophet was called by God to say what God wanted him to say when God wanted him to say it to whomever God wanted him to say it to. It wasn't complicated, it was just hard. You see, there was this problem. Quite often, God told his prophets to say things that they didn't want to say, at times they didn't want to say them, to people they didn't want to say them to. Such was the problem with the prophet Jonah. Well, God told him to travel 500 miles into enemy territory and preach against the people of Nineveh, but there was one small problem. Jonah hated the Ninevites. Honestly, he would have rather seen them go to hell than head over to Nineveh himself and give them the message God wanted him to deliver. So in chapter 1, Jonah ran from God. He boarded a ship heading 2,500 miles in the opposite direction and you remember what happened. God brings a fierce storm upon the Mediterranean Sea where Jonah was in that boat. And the waves are crashing and the the rain is pouring down and the ship's about to be torn into a thousand pieces. Jonah confesses to the other men on the boat that it was his fault that this storm had come because he was running from the Lord. Eventually, those sailors throw him overboard. And it says there in chapter 2, seaweed was wrapped around his head and he was sinking down into the depths of the water, just about to drown. And he cried out to God in prayer. And God brought deliverance in the form of a big fish that swallowed Jonah. And Jonah was inside the whale of that fish for several days. It may have been as little as a day and a half. could have been as long as three full days. But he was inside the belly of that big fish. God had spared him. God had saved him. And there inside that fish, as Jonah was being given a free ride back to shore, Jonah continued to pray to God. Says in verse nine of chapter two, Jonah prayed this prayer. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you, O God. What I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. As soon as Jonah turned to the Lord and confessed his willingness to do what God had called him to do—to go to the people of—I almost said Genoa—go to the people of Nineveh and preach the message that God wanted him to preach. As soon as he made that commitment to God, as soon as he was ready to obey, it says in verse 10, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So today we continue our verse by verse study through the book of Jonah. We're calling this series, Jonah running to God. So we're in chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Hopefully you have your Bibles there in front of you so you can see it for yourself in your own Bible. Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city, a visit required three days. Remember that the book of Jonah is first and foremost a true story about God. It's not primarily a story about a big fish. It's not primarily a story about the city of Nineveh. It's not even primarily a story, story about Jonah the prophet. It's primarily a story about God. And something marvelous about God is revealed in this very first verse of chapter 3. You see, it reveals that our God is not only a merciful and compassionate and loving God, it reveals that our God is a God of second chances. He's a God of second chances. I want you to notice the similarity between the first two verses here in chapter 3 and the first two verses back in chapter 1. If you flip back to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. See the similarity? Look at verse 2 of chapter 1. God said, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now look at verse 2 of chapter 3. God says, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. So you see that similarity. God hasn't changed his marching orders and that shouldn't surprise us because it says over in the book of Malachi verse, verse six of chapter three, I the Lord do not change. Say that with me. I the Lord do not change. God says it so simply there in the final book of the Old Testament. I do not change, says the Lord Almighty. That's one of the most basic characteristics of God. He is unchanging. And his unchanging nature is on full display here in these first two verses of Jonah chapter 3. Two chapters have passed since God first told Jonah to go to Nineveh. And notice, God didn't change his mind about Nineveh. He still wanted his message delivered to Nineveh. And God still didn't change his mind about who he wanted to be his messenger to deliver his message to Nineveh. He still wanted it to be Jonah. God didn't change his mind. He hadn't changed his mind about Jonah being the man to deliver the message. He hadn't changed his mind about the message being delivered, period. God does not change. But look who does change. Look at the contrast between verse 3 in chapter 1 and verse 3 in chapter 3. First of all, chapter 1, look at verse 3. After God gave him the instructions to go to Nineveh, Verse three, it says, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and headed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now look at verse three of chapter three. Notice the difference. It says, now Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Amen. You see the change? God stays the same, verses 1 and 2 of both chapters 1 and 3. God gives him instructions. This is who I want to reach. This is the man I want to reach them. Jonah, you're the one with the assignment. And God tells him virtually the exact same thing two chapters later. Even after Jonah had gone through all his escapades, running from God, being inside a fish, going through the storm, all of that. God didn't change, but Jonah changed. After reading the first two chapters, Jonah chapter 3, verse 3, really is music to our ears. This is a a simple statement that we've been wanting to hear. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. It would have spared Jonah and the sailors on that ship a whole lot of pain and suffering if he had done that back in chapter 1. If he had obeyed when God had first given him that command, that would have saved him and those sailors a whole lot of pain and suffering, right? took him a little while to come along, but at least he finally obeyed here in chapter 3. You see, obeying God in chapter 3 is a whole lot better than not obeying God at all. The same holds true for you and me. Your life has a certain number of chapters. God, like Jonah, gives some of us four chapters. Others of us are blessed with maybe 10 or 12 chapters in our life. And it's better to accept God in your final chapter than not to accept him at all. But how much better it is when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord in one of the early chapters of our lives so that we have all of those chapters remaining to love him, to trust him, and to serve him. Oh, it's a glorious thing when we accept him in an early chapter. It's one of the reasons why children's ministries and youth ministries is such a priority for us At Impact Christian Church, we really believe that it is so important for young people to accept Christ at an early age, in large part so that they can spend the rest of their lives serving the Lord, not waiting until their parents in their mid to late 20s not waiting until they're well-established in their career in their 30s, not waiting until they retire in their 60s, but accepting Christ and beginning to follow him in the early chapters of their lives. Quite often for our kids at Impact, I pray this prayer, Father, I pray that they would give their hearts to you at a young age. That's a prayer I would encourage you to lift up as well, a simple prayer for our kids that come through the doors at Impact even the kids that may be watching with their parents or grandparents to this online service today. God, Father, I pray that they would give their hearts to you at a young age. May they give their hearts to you in an early chapter of their lives. Now, God's word doesn't tell us where the whale vomited Jonah onto dry land. My best guess is that the whale vomited him out right there in Joppa, that port city where he had boarded that ship to head to Spain in the first place. My guess is God had that whale head right back to that port and spew him out on the shore right there. So, if that was the case, there's a really good chance that there was an audience when that whale beached herself and vomited out Jonah. Would have been a, an amazing thing to behold, I'm sure. Uh, would have put on quite a show. Imagine all of those maritime experts there gathered by the docks watching this whale get closer and, and closer to land. And they must have thought, this is kind of strange. Whales never get into shallow water like this. And the whale keeps getting closer. And one sailor says to his buddy, you know what? If this whale keeps this up, this stupid whale's going to beach herself on the land. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. The whale gets closer and closer and beaches herself on the land. And they'd never seen anything like this. And then the whale starts to have these little convulsions in its abdomen. And all of a sudden it opens its mouth and out comes the whale vomit. And right in the middle of the pool of the vomit is what? Jonah himself. Right there in the pool of vomit. There on the shore. In all likelihood, I think, there in Joppa. Well, those sailors and those people at the docks would have had a lot of different opinions as to what had gone on there. Some probably thought that Jonah was a god. He had come from the belly of a fish and survived somehow. So some may have thought he was a god. Uh, Some probably said, no, that's the luckiest darn guy I've ever seen in my life. How on earth did he survive that? So some thought he was a god. Some probably thought he was just one lucky dude. But everyone that might have seen that would have agreed that this dude sitting in that pool of vomit had a story to tell. There was no doubt about it. The man had a story to tell. Now, a few years ago, I did a little research on whale vomit. Yeah, I'm kind of weird that way. I sometimes will research some odd topics, and uh, maybe that's one of the reasons God likes me, because I'm a little odd. But anyway, I did some research on whale vomit, and I learned some interesting things I want to share a little bit with you. Uh, inside whale vomit is this ingredient called ambergris. For centuries, ambergris has been a highly sought-after commodity, especially in the Eastern world. In fact, if you get a large chunk of ambergris from whale vomit, in some parts of the world it's worth thousands of dollars. And so here's a picture here. This guy's just delighted. He got himself a nice big chunk of ambergris. And so there were sailing vessels for many, many years that would go out and actually search for this stuff floating in the ocean or searching for it on the shores around the world. This ambergris is produced uh, within the the whale's intestines. It's kind of a, a, a hard... Uh, oily uh, substance, and and this stuff is is used for a lot of things. For centuries, uh, different sailors believed it had medicinal properties, and so it was kind of like the sailor's snake oil. Uh, for many centuries, it was a an important ingredient in perfume, and so this this ambergris was probably surrounding Jonah. Well, what's the point? What what am I trying to say? I'm saying this: those that know ambergris will tell you. This ingredient in whale vomit, when it's fresh, smells a lot like poop. So, a lot of people have wondered over the years, what did Jonah smell like when he came out of that whale? In all likelihood, Jonah smelled like poop. But notice I mentioned ambergris is used in perfumes. At least it used to be. So, what happens is, fresh ambergris might smell like poop, but after a while, It's described as having kind of a sweet, musky smell. So Jonah, when he came out of that whale, initially smelled pretty bad. But after a while, maybe he smelled like a a cheap bottle of Old Spice. (laughs) So if you're wondering what he smelled like, that's my best guess as to what he smelled like on the day he came out of that whale and then maybe a week or so down the road. Well, if the whale did vomit Jonah at the port city of Joppa, then Jonah had about a 550-mile journey to get to Nineveh, okay? So that would have taken him, with a normal caravan in those days that would travel between 20 and 25 miles a day, would have taken him about a month to get to Nineveh. So by the time he got there, he probably didn't smell like poop anymore. He maybe just smelled like Old Spice. And so those that think, well, Jonah's message was listened to and and followed by the people of Nineveh because of the way he smelled, probably not. Most of that smell would have worn off by the time he got there a month later. But we're told in verse 3 of chapter 3, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Archaeologists tell us that ancient Nineveh and its suburbs were about 60 miles in circumference. That's roughly the size of the Victor Valley where we live. And so you just imagine, it said a three-day journey was required to see it all. Imagine starting here at the airport in Victorville and, and traveling by foot to the uh, Atalanto Stadium, and then from the Atalanto Stadium, you go across the valley to Hesperia Lake, and from Hesperia Lake over to the Apple Valley Airport, and from the Apple Valley Airport, by the time you got there and have a little bit more distance to go, you'd have to head over to Costco to get a $1.50 hot dog, you know? So that would be something that would take us about three days if we were to try to travel around the Victor Valley on foot. Similar thing with Nineveh and its suburbs. Now, picking up in verse 4. Here's what we read here in Jonah chapter 3. It says, when the people, or excuse me, when the news, I jumped to the wrong verse, back in verse 4, on the first day Jonah started into the city, he proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from His fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the disaster and the destruction that He had threatened. Well, after taking the scenic route to Nineveh, Jonah finally arrives in the city. He arrives in the city that he hates and he's raring to go. He doesn't take the three-day tour, does he? He's ready and willing to obey the Lord, but it's pretty clear he wants to get it over with as soon as possible. So on the very first day, instead of taking the three-day tour, on the very first day, according to verse 4, it says he proclaims 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Isn't that an uplifting message? 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. In fact, in the original Hebrew, that sermon there is only five words. That's it. Five words. Not a very inspiring sermon. At least it had this going for it. It was short. (laughs) Some might like that about it, but there wasn't much to that sermon. Just five words. Now it's likely that this is just a small sample of the message, but I think it's safe to say Jonah didn't preach a long-winded message. Certainly he pointed out their wickedness and Violence, in all likelihood, he proclaimed God as holy and righteous, but that's about it. He didn't tell them to repent. He didn't teach them how to repent. He didn't seem to give them any hope that they could do anything to stop God's judgment from coming. His message was just doom and gloom, hopeless. I like how 18th century Bible scholar Matthew Henry says it. He says it this way, Jonah only threatened wrath and ruin. We do not find that he gave them any Calls to repentance or directions how to repent, much less any encouragements to hope that they should find mercy if they did repent. And yet they repented. Isn't that such a great point? It wasn't a great sermon, but they repented. When it came down to it, they turned to God. Even though deep down, Jonah didn't want God to forgive the Ninevites, even though deep down he didn't want them to repent. Now, he didn't want God to give them a second chance. He hated the Ninevites. He hated them. And he wanted them to burn in hell. He didn't want them to turn to God. Well, as best as we can tell, Jonah didn't urge them to repent or tell them how to repent or give them any hope that God would forgive them if they did repent. Yet amazingly, in verses 5 through 10, it makes it clear that the people of Nineveh did repent. Look at verse 5. Three things it says. Number one, they believed God. Number two, they declared a fast. And number three, they all, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. What sackcloth? It was a scratchy goat's hair, sometimes camel's hair, that was ugly and uncomfortable to show that that person was in mourning. This is remarkable. You, you could make the case that Jonah was the most successful prophet in the Old Testament. Think about it. He just preached for one day and 120,000 people repent. Uh, That's not bad, is it? Uh, I've never had anywhere close to that repent with years of sermons. One basic sermon spread out over the course of, as far as we can tell, just one day and 120,000 people repent. The Ninevites even had to get their farm animals involved. They tried to get their farm animals to repent. They didn't let them eat food. They didn't let them drink water. They put sackcloth on their cows and their sheep and their camels. Remarkable. We don't see that anywhere else in the Old Testament or in the New. They were trying their best to turn to God. Now, over the course of the centuries, Jews and Christians have wondered why the people of Nineveh responded so quickly to Jonah's message. Because when you think about it, it wouldn't be normal for an entire city of over a 100,000 people who maybe hadn't even heard the name of God to repent so quickly, especially because it was a pretty arrogant people. And so different Bible scholars have suggested a, a few different ideas. Uh, some would say, well, uh, if the whale's vomit, uh, uh, vomiting of, of Jonah had an audience, then possibly by the time he made it to Nineveh a month later, Word had already reached Nineveh about this man who had survived inside the stomach of a whale. And so maybe they knew about Jonah already It added credibility to his message. That's a possibility. Maybe, as some suggest, the Ninevites, being very superstitious people, had identified so-called omens in the stars or in the entrails of animals or, or possibly in the migration of birds that led them to believe that doom was coming. So when Jonah went, took to the streets and proclaimed that message that doom was coming in 40 days. Maybe it was lining up with those omens they had already feared could be. Perhaps Jonah's skin had been bleached white from the whale's digestive juices, so Jonah stood out in the crowd and they realized, we better pay attention to this guy. He's not normal. That could be as well. But whatever the specifics may be, God was behind it. Amen? Whatever the specifics, God was behind it. God was at work. Just as God provided a fish for Jonah in chapter 2, God provided all that was needed for the people of Nineveh to repent and turn to him. It certainly wasn't Jonah's preaching that led the people to repent, right? It wasn't his preaching. It wasn't good enough to to lead people to repent. It wasn't his preaching. It wasn't his passion. It wasn't his concern for the people. He didn't have any. It was God. God. It was all God. So when Jonah's message of judgment reached the Assyrian king, and specifically the king there in Nineveh, uh, notice those five things we read in verses six through nine. Notice what the king does. Number one, he rose from his throne. Number two, he, he took off his royal robes. Number three, he covered himself with sackcloth. Number four, he sat down in the dust. Number five, he issued a proclamation commanding everyone in his kingdom to do the same, including the farm animals. Now, if the people of Nineveh had simply fasted and sat in ashes and put on the sackcloth, do you think God would have forgiven them? Do you think God would have relented from sending calamity? I don't think so. Because in Isaiah chapter 58, God makes it clear that he is not impressed with fasting by itself. If fasting is just looking somber and sitting in ashes, God's not interested. Notice what it says in Isaiah chapter 58, starting in verse 4. God's Word says, Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and He will say, Here I am. So the Bible is clear. That fasting is a wonderful spiritual discipline when it is accompanied by heartfelt prayer, and this is a kicker, a true change in our behavior. If fasting does not include heartfelt, sincere prayer from, from the depths of your being, and if prayer and fasting is not accompanied with obedience to God's word, God is not interested in it. He's not interested. From what we read in Jonah chapter 3, it's clear that the Ninevites' prayers and repentance were sincere. Notice in the king's proclamation what he commands all his people to do. It's in the second half of verse 8. He says, let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. He knew they were a violent people. And he must have done his homework to realize that the God of heaven and earth was not a fan of violence. And so he said, give it up. Change your behavior. Change the way that you live. The king knew there weren't any guarantees that God would spare Nineveh the destruction he had threatened. He told his subjects in verse 9, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And that's exactly what the God of heaven and earth did. Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. I want you to notice in verse 9 and 10, twice the word compassion is used. It's a beautiful word. On the heels of showering Jonah with undeserved compassion, God showered the wicked people of Nineveh with undeserved compassion as well. You see, neither Jonah nor the people of Nineveh were too far gone to be reached by God's mercy and grace. And the same Holds true for you. Well, in closing, I want to share with you three very important insights that we can pull from Jonah chapter 3. I actually had four, but for the sake of time, I'll just keep it to three. And we'll revisit that fourth one next time. But let me give you this first insight. Insight number one. It's not enough to just run to God. You need to start running with God. Amen? I asked you that question last week. Are you running from God or are you running to God? Are you Jonah in chapter 1 or are you Jonah in chapter 2? Some of you listening to this message today are probably running from God. And God is saying it's time to get out of chapter 1 and get into chapter 2. It's time to start running to God. Amen? You need to stop running from God. It's getting you nowhere fast, just like it got Jonah nowhere fast In Jonah chapter 1, it's time to run to God. But those of us who have begun running to God, we've got to realize it doesn't stop there. Running to God is just the beginning point. It's just the starting point. It's where you come out of the gate and begin your Christian race. Once you run to God, you've got to run with God, amen? A surfer is not a surfer if he simply gets on his surfboard and paddles out to the wave. That's not a surfer. A surfer paddles out to the wave... And then he gets on that board and rides that wave. Amen? And the same holds true for a follower of Jesus Christ. It's the same way when you're a Christian. It's not enough to run to God. You've got to start running with God. Join God in His work. Find out where He is moving and move with Him. Find out where God is working and work with Him. Don't just run to God. Make sure you also run with God. Insight number two. In the kingdom of God, the shortest distance between two points is obedience. Say that with me. In the kingdom of God, the shortest distance between two points is obedience. I said it before and I'll say it again. It would have been so much easier for Jonah and those sailors. It would have spared Jonah and those sailors so much pain and suffering if Jonah had simply obeyed in chapter 1. Notice that God eventually got Jonah to obey. God's will was carried out. That's one of the reasons we say that God is sovereign. He is in charge. If he is determined that you are going to do something for him, you will do that something for him. Eventually, one way or another, you're going to end up doing it because God has determined it and he's going to make sure that comes to pass. And so the question is, are you going to drag your feet in disobedience And rebel against God and run the opposite way? Or are you going to get with the program today? You see, the shortest distance between two points in God's kingdom is, in fact, obedience. Sooner or later, you're going to obey. But Are you going to wait to the final chapter of your life to do it? I hope not. Start obeying God's word today. The shortest distance between two points is obedience. Finally, insight number three. The Ninevites' willingness to repent after hearing only one sermon exposes our foolishness for stubbornly refusing to repent after hearing many sermons. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. One sermon. Just one sermon. And it wasn't even a good sermon. It wasn't even a a sermon that Jonah liked giving. His heart was not engaged in that sermon. It was a vague sermon. It was a half-hearted sermon. He didn't even tell the people how to repent. He didn't even give the people any hope that God might change his mind and not bring calamity if they turned to God and repented of their sin. It was really a pretty shoddy sermon. But the people still repented, didn't they? The people still turned to God. Well, in contrast... Millions of Americans across this great country have Bibles on their bookshelves at home and they have heard dozens, if not hundreds of good sermons spelling out clearly that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, the only way to make it to heaven. And so many millions of Christians after hearing dozens, if not hundreds of good sermons have still rebelled against God and pushed him to the side and hardened their hearts. They refused to repent. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus mentions Jonah. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 12. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah And now one greater than Jonah is here. One greater than Jonah is here. It's Jesus Christ. Far greater than Jonah. So much more clear in his preaching than Jonah. So much more anointed with his message than Jonah. And yet, with one flawed message from a very flawed prophet, 120,000 Ninevites repented. Yet so many of us in this nation turn from God and harden our hearts and refuse to repent when we've heard that clear message over and over again. So there's no excuse. There's no excuse for anyone, including you, to stubbornly refuse to repent. You have no excuse. So let's take a moment. Let's pray for ourselves. Let's pray for our families. Let's pray for our nation because all of us are without excuse. We need to repent. Heavenly Father, forgive us for our stubbornness. Lord, there's a lot of stubbornness in your people just like there was a lot of stubbornness in your prophet Jonah. Lord, so often we hear your word preached clearly and it goes in one ear and out the other. Father, so often we've heard messages that are powerful and biblical and clear and convicting and we've refused to repent. Lord, we pray first of all for ourselves. I pray that you would, Lord, help us to have soft hearts to receive your word. Help us to repent in the big ways, Lord, those of us that need to give our lives fully to you that haven't done that yet. I pray we would repent today. And those of us, Lord, who have given our hearts to you, but Lord, we are, we're holding on to these small areas of our lives where we are holding on to them and not handing them over to you. Lord, I pray we would repent from those little things as well. Lord, I pray for our families, Lord. So many of us have kids that refuse to repent. So many of us have grandkids and neighbors and coworkers and fellow students in our schools, Lord, who refuse to repent. God, would you have mercy? Would you open their ears and help them to hear? Would you open their minds and hearts and help them to receive your word and turn from their sin? And God, we intercede on behalf of our nation. Our nation has turned its back on you and chased after sin. Our nation, in so many ways, is calling good evil and calling evil good. We've turned sin on its ear and called it righteousness and called righteousness evil. Forgive us, O God, for turning our backs from you running from You, hardening our hearts toward You, O God. I pray that our nation were to repent. I pray that our national and state and local leaders would repent. May we turn to You, O God. May we turn to You. Help us not, Lord, to forsake the grace that could be ours. Help us not to turn our backs on Your salvation. I pray, O God, that we, like the people of Nineveh, would hear Your Word and receive it humbly and repent. Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I just find that so remarkable that God uses flawed men like Jonah and flawed messages like Jonah's sermon to change entire cities. This message I've shared with you today, I've tried to share it clearly, I've tried to share it accurately, but it is by no means a perfect message, and I am by no means a perfect messenger. But that's rather irrelevant. God wanted you to hear that message today. Flaws and all. He wanted you to hear the message. And he's wanting you today to realign your life with his. To realign your life with the life of Jesus Christ. To say what Christ wants you to say. To go where Christ wants you to go. To do what Christ calls you to do. And if you've never made that decision to follow Jesus Christ and get on that wave and ride it with Him, then today is the day to do it. It's not complicated to become a follower of Christ. It's not easy, but it's not complicated. We like to share the ABCs. A, admit that you are a sinner and you need Jesus as your Savior. B, believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and is your only hope of being forgiven and going to heaven someday. And C, choose. Beginning today, choose to follow Jesus Christ from this point forward through every remaining chapter in your life until God calls you home. If you made that decision today to accept Christ as Savior, I encourage you to reach out to one of our prayer counselors right now. Their names and phone numbers are at the bottom of the screen. Call them, text them, let them know that you've made this decision. And we'd love to talk to you about getting baptized as soon as possible because baptism is what Jesus Christ wants you to take part in to let everyone know I'm serious about following Jesus Christ from this point forward. My old life is buried. My new life is raised to follow Jesus Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. If you've made that decision today, I want to say congratulations to you. That is the best decision you could ever make. If you've been backsliding, it's time to paddle out and start joining Jesus on that wave. Maybe you need to reach out to one of us right now and say, hey, I want to rededicate my life to Christ today. Would you pray with me? We'd be happy to do that. Or maybe you're a baptized follower of Jesus Christ who simply is a Christian without a church home. And if you'd like to make impact your church home, we'd love to talk to you about that as well. Whatever that decision may be today, you reach out to us as God's Spirit leads you to. God bless you as you serve the Lord this week. Serve Him with all your heart. Do everything you can to serve the Lord, repenting and turning from anything that's not in line with what he wants you to be doing and what he wants you to be saying. Let's follow Jesus Christ with everything we've got and finish this book of our lives well. I don't know how many chapters you have left, but however many it is, live them for Jesus Christ. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.